This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Psych Debates. It's Dr. Monty Altohami, your favorite psychiatry resident, and with me today is Dr. Jonathan Namias, my co-host for this episode, and my favorite psychiatry resident. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Brandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist, a specialist in the topic of violence. She's the organizer of the Duty to Warn conference and has found herself in the crux of the debate over the Goldwater Rule that prohibits psychiatrists from speaking out in political campaigns. We are so excited for this episode. At the crux of today's debate is another existential question around psychiatry itself. Should psychiatry be political? One might think the simple answer is it's already been. Well, stick around for this episode this and this debate. This house believes the psychiatric is political and you shall find the answer out for yourself. I'm excited, man. I feel like this is a like she's kind of a celebrity, too. I mean, there, there are experts in the field, which she is definitely. But this is somebody who is broken into like like the limelight, like pop culture, like things that people outside of nerdy psychiatry topics are interested in as well. So <laughs> I'm excited. Of course. Jonathan, we are two non-nerdy psychiatrists. Again, guys, the way we improve the quality of debate and put the ego of combatants aside is by assigning debate positions based off random assignment. The positions we debate do not represent positions that we would normally hold, but rather the result of that random assignment. They are not representative of medical opinions or of the institutions that we belong to. Without any further delay, the Psych Debates House calls on the motion for debate, and we begin with the proposition speaker, who will be arguing that the psychiatric is political, followed by Dr. Namias for the opposition. The psychiatric is political. It always has been and will always be. I think to state otherwise is perhaps naive. In medicine, psychiatry is the practice most applicable to life, the one that goes beyond the hospital walls the most. Human behavior in the fantastic ways it produces and in the destructive ways it fails is by no means limited to the categorized and treatable syndromes within the controlled setting of the hospital. Hate, for instance, is a destructive emotion that can lead to violence. Ignorance can lead to systems crumbling and injustice can create traumas for generations. On the historical negative aspects of how psychiatry can be political, we can look at how white psychiatrists in the past have pathologized black behavior. The Soviet Union used it in the past to imprison political dissenters. And this is by no means restricted to the Eastern Bloc. This happened in Canada, in the United States, in countries that are considered quite liberal. On the empowering side of things, One can look at psychiatrists such as Franz Fanon, who deconstructed the idea of colonialism and its effects on psyche, and through that work inspired liberation movements across the African continent. And the list goes on. 
Psychiatrists have a huge role in the political sphere because human behavior, our specialty, pervades every aspect of life. The Goldwater Rule, created by the EPA, the largest professional organization for psychiatrists in the United States, was created in reaction to a presidential campaign in which the words and opinions of psychiatrists were sensationalized as medical assessments and truth about candidates. This led to the rule's creation as an effort to discourage psychiatrists from making comments in regards to political campaign. But one wonders if media sensationalism is at fault here or the psychiatrist for sharing their opinions. Orthopedists weigh in on star quarterbacks with high ankle sprain, cardiologists on political candidates who, have, or who had feigning spells. Everyone knows the physician is not making a definitive medical diagnosis, but is instead helping the public understand the implications of those conditions better. Now, why is it important for psychiatrists out of all the different physician specialties to speak out? There's two reasons for that. One, the one I mentioned before, the applicability of psychiatry to every aspect of life but also because we have the duty to warn, and our study studies human behavior. The duty to warn is a core ethic for physicians, and I feel psychiatrists should have the right to warn society if they feel a policy can lead to destructive effects on mental health and mental well-being. Also, there's huge roles for us to play as advocates when it comes to mental illness. There are so many gaps in the system, and if we're not allowed to speak out against policies that might be contributing to those mental illness gaps, then we are failing at a large part of our work, and that is curbing the social determinants that create mental health problems. And for all these reasons, I wish to propose this motion strongly. Psychiatry should not be political. Um, this is a stance that's actually pretty well established. This American Psychiatric Association in 1973 had created this thing called the Goldwater Rule, where uh, this uh, it was made after a person, Barry Goldwater, who was a presidential candidate, a conservative Republican senator from Arizona, who uh, had been uh, essentially public shamed, um, wrongfully publicly shamed by a, several psychiatrists, a handful, actually hundreds of psychiatrists, who labeled him without ever having any kind of interview with him one-on-one -on -one, as schizophrenic, um, among all sorts of other psychiatric diagnoses. Um, this was, as you can imagine, an enormous controversy. Um, and this is, for all I know, this man did not have any kind of mental disorders. In fact, he had a very successful career. He wasn't a president, but he remained a senator for some time and uh, held various other public offices that you would not think somebody with schizophrenia would be able to have, let alone uh, all sorts of other things that he was labeled of having. So after this, the American Psychiatry Association, which is the, the leading psychiatry group in the United States that has set all sorts of standards and codes of ethics, and as well as our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, that we use to diagnose people with mental disorders. Um, in addition to the Goldwater Rule um, and this example with this president, or this past presidential candidate, I mean, um, there are all sorts of other reasons why psychiatry should not be political. Um, one is that if we are saying that somebody 
in high end politics has a mental disorder and you're attempting to say that for that reason they're not fit for office, you are stigmatizing this mental disorder or people that have mental disorders, further reducing the chances that people are going to want to reach out and get help later in their lives if they do have a mental disorder. Um, also making it just harder in general for those that do have a mental disorder, accept it, say it, and for people to only judge them after that. Um, additionally, there's the question that comes up is if you're a psychiatrist and you see somebody having mental disorder problems or symptoms, should you say it out loud or are you breaching that person's privacy by saying that these series of behaviors, thoughts, emotions are consistent with a mental disorder? Um, there is There are laws, of course, uh, us in the hospital, we're not able to just release in, any patient information. So that doesn't, so that means that psychiatrists commenting on politicians and in the public sphere should not be able to either if you don't want to violate their privacy whether or not you're accurate or not it's just not ethical so that that is my spiel about why psychiatry should not be political thank you we are so excited to have our guest today Dr. Brandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist who earned her medical degree at Yale Medical School, completed her psychiatry training at Mass General Hospital, where she was chief resident. She started her career studying the anthropology of violence in East Africa as a fellow of the National Institute of Mental Health. Since then, she has continued to do a lot of work and specifically on violence and has worked several years in maximum security prisons in the United States and initiating several reforms to prison complexes. She also heads the Violence Prevention Alliance for the World Health Organization and is the author of a textbook on that manner. She's found herself at the heart of a debate that's plagued psychiatry since its inception with organizing the Duty to Warrant Conference, which has also led to a publishing of a book which stimulated debate and conversation about the role of psychiatrists in the political arena. Now, Dr. Brandy Lee, psychiatrists have a lot of power, and this power may not necessarily be due to innate factors, but rather ascribed to the historical legacy and the fundamental science of humanity that we study, we investigate, we treat, and thus our word carries a lot of power for good and bad. And so can you tell us if psychiatry should be political? Yes, thank you again for having me. I started speaking up actually um, with the uh, start of the Trump presidency. Before this, I was not politically active at all, you might say. And uh, even though I was consulting with a number of governments on violence prevention programs and prison reform, I uh, considered that strictly policy oriented and not political. But uh, I usually say that uh, it wasn't I who decided to become political, but that the political sphere invaded my area of expertise. Um, And so in a sense, I felt that I had no choice. I spent my career uh, studying, predicting, and preventing violence. And would I turn away in the face of perhaps the greatest violence that we could ever face as as humankind uh, by virtue of the mental instability and psychological dangerousness I saw in the newly elected president uh, with the power that he held. 
And so uh, you might also say that I was summoned to this because uh, the day after election, starting at about eight o'clock in the morning, I was flooded with phone calls, emails, uh, messages from uh, civil society members, uh, students, lawyers, um, uh, members of the public, uh, essentially contacting me because I was known as an expert on violence. And they were afraid of the violence that would come with this presidency, and they were right. Uh, at first, I did not come out in public. I tried to work behind the scenes, writing letters to Congress members. But I realized that mental health professionals had a consensus about the dangerousness of this president. So I felt that uh, our voice should, um, that we should have a voice where it mattered. And so I collected my colleagues together first to address the ethics of speaking up. And that's when the um, ethics conference happened at Yale School of Medicine, where I assembled some of the best minds in psychiatry. And we decided we did have uh, a duty to inform the public of the potential dangers it was facing. That's when we collected essays, put together the dangerous case of Donald Trump at first 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assessing the president. Um, we were careful not to diagnose and not to go anywhere. We, we could not uh, from a distance, but there are certainly things we could tell from, uh, from a distance, such as dangerousness. And that's what we focused on and published the book. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I think that uh, just to kind of uh, drive that led to that change is very interesting. And also, I found a point that you said about not being politically active before is very interesting um, because some might see your work in violence, um, you know, having a lot of political impact or social impact um, and would say that that's also in a way kind of affecting the the politique of of the society that we live in so i i think it's it's very interesting you say what do you, what do you think jonathan yeah i wonder like uh at what level we do we do define politics in that region like i yeah. I, I i'm no expert in the field of, yeah. of policy and violence uh, prevention um but but how do we define politics and uh at, at what points do we as like as psychiatrists in the field um like at, at what point can we interact with with politicians and ourselves and in, in order to make a difference um, yeah. well as a forensic psychiatrist who uh routinely consults with the courts with uh governmental bodies uh i make clear that i speak from a medical perspective and for me uh, I'm not an expert in politics, certainly. And uh, for me, the difference is whether it is science-driven, data-driven, and whether it's specifically drawing from my training in public health and uh, policy in order to improve societal health and safety, as opposed to ideology-driven, because politics in politics, uh, in healthy politics, I would say, uh, you can have a wide variety of different approaches and different ideologies that are just personal preference 
and political preference. And so that's not quite the perspective I bring. I bring the perspective of does uh, do certain policies save lives? Uh, do they improve uh, general uh uh, safety and life expectancy and things of that nature. For me, that's medical. Yeah, that's I, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, I was going to say that's an interesting point because I, I think, and and I don't know, maybe maybe our politicians think about this more often than I give them credit for. But when I think about the policies, I mean, especially in these past few years of like, I mean, human rights violations on the border and. Um, just, just the the amount of suffering that comes with these seemingly like very quick decisions. I I wonder, like, is there is there somebody in the political sphere, like a like the Surgeon General of like, is this an ethical thing? Like, is there an advisor to the president or something? Yeah. Like, or, a, or like, is that really up to us? Like a like a like a psychiatrist in general? Like, is that like a psychiatrist in general? Is that what exactly. you're referring to? I think that's a really yeah. interesting point, Doctor Lee. I, I think what you know, I want to just touch on that point again that that you just mentioned, which is this kind of fine um, line between what what is medically informed and what is political commentary, and I think um, you know. When does our psychiatrically, quote unquote, evidence, informed assessment, judgment, analysis stop being just that and become political commentary? No, no different from anybody's um, political opinion. And I, I say this only to uh, touch on the point that a lot of our formulation for good or bad historically and even currently is informed by society's norms, cultures um, and you know, customs. And so that has a lot of effect on what as psychiatrists, we, 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 um, what we, what we, the frame of our formulation, uh, what we consider our, our science, um, you know, what, what, where, how do we make those distinctions? For me, I think, uh, the more that we learn through research and, uh, evidence, the more we can bring a medical perspective to policy, in fact. Uh, I believe that uh, in the current situation, we suffer not so much from using medicine as a proxy for political views, but rather the other way around, that politics is is, um, sitting in for what evidence and science could inform us about inform us about and just as you mentioned the uh the human rights abuses the traumatization of children at the border the uh the vast unnecessary deaths by hundreds of thousands uh based on mismanagement of a viral pandemic um the near dissolution of our democracy because of the mental instability of a president. These are actually, frankly, medical issues that could be dealt with uh, in medical terms uh, through uh, because they have become true uh, matters of health and well-being. It, it's affecting life and death. And so um, I think it's a mistake to just simply say it's a partisan issue and differing uh, different viewpoints, because when it starts to affect uh, health and well-being and even lives, then it does become a medical issue. And um, 
And I think actually we do have that situation where we don't have uh, truly equal um, both parties being equally life affirming. We don't have that. We have one side that is logical, uh, science informed and um, uh, productive policy oriented, whereas the other side is uh, based on actually delusions and manipulation and pathology. So I think that's important to call out. And so uh, I personally have never been interested in politics, but increasingly it's becoming more of a psychiatric issue than a political issue in my, uh, from my point of view. And We've also done empirical studies where one party is clearly causing uh, a disproportionate amount of violent death compared to the other party. Uh, consistently over the past 110 years, we did an empirical study on this, and uh, that's something we cannot ignore. There's there's so much there that you're you're talking about, and I I feel like we could steer this in all different directions. I, one thing I I wanted to ask you about is, I guess this line on what makes a delusion something that we have to be concerned about. Um, like for example, you know we see patients in the hospital, and maybe they have a delusion that somebody's harming them, and so or some somebody's going to harm them, or they're going to harm somebody else, and so we say okay you have a major delusion that's going to put somebody else's life in danger or your life in danger, so you have to stay in the hospital. Um, involuntary commitments, which we touched on a little bit in our last our, uh, podcast episode. But I feel like delusions are pretty common. Like, I may have the delusion that if I do this podcast every day, we're going to have the biggest, most famous podcast in the world. Um, and, and I may believe it from the bottom of my heart. Um, so at what point do we say that like a delusion becomes dangerous from like a, like a political sense? Well, as, as we know, we allow a great uh, degree of variation in our society. We actually protect civil rights and civil liberties and uh, allow for people a wide range of belief systems and even delusions and hallucinations we don't necessarily treat unless they are at a risk of harming themselves or others. And so we're a very tolerant society, and I believe rightfully so. Um, but I do believe that it's time to speak up when they do harm society as a whole. And uh, when we have something such as denial of reality, where uh, um, truths, facts are no longer believed and uh, people are doubling down, um, turning violent when their beliefs are challenged and uh, relationships are being ruptured and our entire society is being broken apart by uh uh, an entire segment clinging to those beliefs, then those are destructive beliefs. And, uh, and especially when they are artificially generated in order to keep certain people in power, uh, in order to advantage certain political groups, uh, rather than uh, to help a population make valid, uh, informed, educated choices, then I think uh, it's starting to become harmful. Uh, you know, I, I think that's 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 really interesting. I, I do want to touch on a point that you mentioned earlier 
um, in regards to this kind of partisanship and also where psychiatry fits in the facts and using empirical evidence uh, to guide our policy and to guide our statements um, in, in the media. You know, I think historically there, there's kind of a yin and yang to everything and psychiatry is, it sticks to that form. And who's to say that, for instance, a Republican psychiatrist may argue that uh, what, what you may say is, is actually uh, not true and provide an opposing you know, empirical evidence uh, to state the opposite um, and, and create this situation where science, well, science is politically informed, but just kind of creating a partisanship in, within science itself. And I think psychiatry is particularly prone to this. Um, just because I think psychiatry is in its infancy, at least in neuroscientifically. Uh, and we've seen historical um, moments where I, I believe psychiatry is used uh, for not for not so good reasons. Um, you know, as you know, for instance, uh, in his book, John, Jonathan Metzl, uh, not our Jonathan, another Jonathan. <laughs> One of these days I'll get a book out. <laughs> uh, kind of mentioned in Protest psych- uh, Psychosis how... Uh, uh, psychiatry was used to inform, it was used to preserve in a human, in a human way, um, this, this structural racism. Um, and so how, how do, how do we, how do we kind of make sure that there isn't a a society where psychiatry is politically engaged and has the duty to warn, but isn't, um, you know, that line. Exactly. You know, kind of not 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 serving goodness for for you know for that sake. Yeah, absolutely. I think like any science, um, we need to be humble about what we know and what we can know and what we cannot. And uh, psychiatry, in particular, has I would not say it's any less scientific than the other medical specialties now, but that's fairly recent. And you're right about the history of psychiatry, of how it's been compromised and how uh, people's mistaken notions about it have been used to uh, to basically instrumentalize psychiatry for political purposes. And I would say that it, it has happened even now under the Trump presidency, the American Psychiatric Association actually changed one of its ethical guidelines called the Goldwater Rule. Uh, conflating people's mistaken notions about what is diagnosis and what is mean, um, what is commentary without diagnosis, what is clinical psychiatry versus what is public health psychiatry, who is a patient versus our uh, etiquette toward a public figure. They took mistaken notions that the public had and made them essentially worse by uh, in order to protect uh, the president um, because they changed the guideline into a gag order uh, less than two months into the start of the presidency. And, and so we warned about that. We warned that uh, psychiatric institutions should not change their norms and standards according to political pressure. And they should uh, not stifle uh, voices to educate the public and allow the public to have the information to to be able to protect itself. 
uh, the APA actually prevented that. It gagged an entire profession where psychiatrists, mental health experts became the only professionals who could not speak about their area of expertise. It's quite extraordinary if you think about it. Absolutely. And so when they did this, uh, we predicted that this would be, this was the first sign of authoritarianism where if a professional organization was ceding its authority to power, then, um, then authoritarianism would be facilitated and we would not be able to hold the president accountable for anything. And that's what resulted. Uh, if we could not hold him accountable for his, the defining characteristic of the presidency, of the Trump presidency, which was his mental unfitness, then he would not be able to be held accountable for anything. And that's currently held to be true. So um, it's very important that we keep our integrity, uh, keep our standards of the profession, keep our medical neutrality, which means not allowing political interests, financial conflicts whatsoever uh, of the sort to play a role we know how to do that. In fact, that's how we've been trained. We don't continue to see patients if, if our political views or our personal preferences interfere with our ability to, to be objective with that patient. Um, and it's the same with consultations I do as a forensic psychiatrist, same with speaking up about political figures. If our political partisanship, affiliation, uh, financial conflicts of interest interfere with our ability to apply the medical principles we've learned, then we have to recuse ourselves. So I think uh, staying with guidelines, standards and norms is very important. And it's not just psychiatry, it's all across the board. Once we start to compromise these, then we become tools of an authoritarian regime, which uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've had that throughout history, that if we stop being moral agents who are check on our own integrity, then we can easily become instruments for all manner of atrocities, especially doctors. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty frightening. I mean, to think that, um, I, and I didn't know that, that the APA had a new change very soon after the next president or the, the president was elected. Um, it, it it actually, it makes me think a little bit kind of about like censorship, sh censorship in general and and about how that's, that's a very hot topic these days, oftentimes in reference to the past president of people should be able to say what they want to be, what they want to say. And they're, they're also being the opposition of, well, what if what you're going to say is going to incite violence or has incited violence before? And, and where is that line? And I, 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 don't, I think that when we're coming from a, a completely scientific standpoint, we say, look, this is the data that we have. We know that this correlates with this, X equals Y. Then to me, and, and maybe it's just because I'm more scientifically minded, that's that's a more fair, unbiased way to to look at things rather than just spouting out misinformation. Uh, I don't know. What, I mean, what do you think, Monty, about like uh, 
our ability to like, yeah. our, should we have freedom to be able to say things like that? No, I, I think what's really interesting is that you nobody would bat an eye at like an orthopedic um, commenting about an ACL injury on an NBA player um, or cardiologist coming into a talk show or, or, or news um, room and, and talking about a feigning spell uh, for, you know, a certain political candidate and trying to figure out what it is. But I think it's very interesting that this is like uniquely, um, uniquely applies to psychiatrists. So, you know, I think it just it almost goes to show like how political um, our word is and how, 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 how powerful we can be. Uh, in, in instrumenting change, some of the changes that Dr. Dr. Lee was mentioning. So, you know, I think that's my kind of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, kind of scary that um, there are, you know, you know, there are certain organizations that are, you know, kind of countering that. Uh, but it's also kind of contrarian because it goes both ways. If, if you want to express your opinion, I, you should you should kind of let others express their opinion. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, you know, a really interesting debate. Yeah. And the I, APA... I also, oh, sorry, sorry, the uh, the APA had uh, clear financial conflicts of interest where uh, it was making rules and regulations regarding uh, public figures and governmental entities that it lobbies for funding. And by silencing the entire mental health profession and therefore stigmatizing the entire field even further, uh, because uh, I don't think it was um, natural in people's mind when we first started speaking up. They thought, of course, mental health experts would speak about mental health issues. But when the APA came out and said that it was stigmatizing that uh, we were not allowed to talk unless we examined the person and gotten consent from the person, which is uh, rather an absurd standard, especially where public health and safety is concerned. Uh, um, uh, it, uh, it was intervening in ways where uh, it was advantaging itself because it received windfalls of federal funding after its intervention, after it silenced all the mental health experts uh, in ways that were the opposite direction of most scientific and educational organizations under that presidency. And so it had a clear conflict of interest. So these are the problems um, of corruption, of uh, non-neutrality and collusion with dangerous governments, which uh, actually, the Declaration of Geneva, the Universal Physicians Pledge, in fact, prohibits. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's it is certainly you know uh, disheartening uh, to not feel like uh, you know the organization that kind of stands for what we are, you know, or at least in American, um, or at least in America, has our backs in that sense. Um, I think what's what what would be what kind of makes me curious is where where should we go from here, and what what should the the new era gold water rule be? Um, our ability to speak out as psychiatrists, in your opinion, Doctor Lee. Well, um, uh, 
the very interesting thing about the APA is that uh, since it made that controversial change to the Goldwater Rule in March 2017, it has vigorously prevented any discussion. Uh, a slew of members resigned from the APA, including high-ranking officers. They received a ton of protest letters uh, to the point where ethics committee members thought they would be reconvening It never allowed for them to reconvene. Uh, several action papers went ignored. Uh, a member, actually um, a former member, um, formed its own committee and proposed a Goldwater Rule revision proposal, which was very thoughtful and well-written. According to many, it uh, ignored that proposal. It uh, also ignored scholarship because there was a landmark article that should have been the guideline for how to interpret the Goldwater Rule just months before they met, but they went in the opposite direction. In fact, the opposite direction of science and evolving practice in ways that made no sense at all. Um, there was a foremost Goldwater Rule scholar who uh, proposed that he chair a commission uh, to, um, to read the Goldwater Rule, a president-elect of the APA was excited. She consented to it, but once she became president, had to rescind the offer. Uh, so, um, well, this kind of blocking of discussion, not holding a vote when uh, members demanded it, not holding a discussion at all cost. And when the American College of Psychiatrists actually did an informal poll, an uh, an overwhelming number of psychiatrists were found to be against the current version of the Goldwater Rule. So it's really problematic when they create an order of this kind of um, that has no exception that uh, uh, that they are imposing not just on its members because the Goldwater Rule is not part of any licensing board, certifying agency, or any other mental health association we know of. So it only applies to 6% of practicing mental health professionals who are members. And yet they went on public campaigns pretending that it applied to all mental health professionals and essentially shutting down all public discussion. This kind of thing should not be allowed to occur. It's a formula for tyranny and authoritarianism. Yeah. Journalists and intellectuals are the first persons to be silenced in authoritarian regimes. Um, I have taught uh, Yale Law students for 17 years where they have represented asylum seekers from politically repressive regimes. And so we know how they work. Um, we cannot silence professional and intellectual voices just as we cannot silence journalists. These are critical voices to be heard, uh, to, uh, to work as a check on governments and protect public health and freedom and democracy. And uh, we knew from the start that this was uh, a warning sign and in fact, everything that we predicted came true, including the vast numbers of unnecessary deaths, the near loss of our democracy and the spread of uh, 
disinformation, um, mistaken beliefs, fixed beliefs that people would not be able to let go because of an authoritarian cult of personality. These are all things that we predicted on day one based on our understanding of the psychological makeup of the personality structure of Donald Trump and the combination of the immense powers of the US presidency that uh, basically that what that combination would bring. And we were, uh, we wish that we had been incorrect, but we were precise in, in terms of the degree and uh, even in terms of the timetable of dangers that we predicted. And um, that is what we were able to offer. Uh, the experience of hun seeing hundreds of patients with the same personality structure, uh, applying them to the circumstances that were uh, brought to the situation and uh, the evidence of decades of research. Uh, this kind of knowledge is not nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but because we were silenced, and because mental health experts were replaced with political pundits, uh, the dangers were routinely underestimated and pathologies were normalized. And here we are with the spread of dangers in ways that, uh, you know, the, the viral pandemic had been spiraling out of control when experts were silenced. And we're at the same point with the mental health pandemic, uh, except that we haven't really tackled it yet the way we are with the viral pandemic. You know, the thing that came to my mind uh, was, uh, you know, this question now, you know, that comes to my mind a lot. And this is something that Jonathan's brought up in a previous podcast, um, you know, that's seen sometimes that when, when patients um, are, are, you know, claiming to want to do violence, what we call like homicidal ideation, uh, instead of instead of seeing that as a, a criminal act, uh, they're sometimes and a lot of times taken to the psychiatric emergency room. And, you know, it kind of draws this interesting question between what is dangerous and what is illness? And what, what do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, that, that does actually make me me think as you were, I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate here. As you were talking about the the personality structures, and you have, of course, all this experience seeing how people with certain personalities, the results play out afterwards. I think, like, I wonder about those people that have personality disorders, and and let's use just borderline personality disorder because there's a treatment for that one, a good treatment. Uh, people people can change over time, and so. Uh, Let's say that somebody has, you know, we've we've caught them at their worst in society, and and the the news really plays it up. I could see people discussing how like uh, maybe there's a story that that was blown out of proportion, or it's really not an uncommon thing, uh, not a great thing, but not an uncommon thing. And then defining somebody based off their personality as being like uh, a judgmental thing and something that maybe we're, we're jumping the gun on and saying that this guy has a personality like this. Um, like I, I want to assume the best of my patients, not, not assume, but give them the, give them the chance to, you know, get out of their pathological personality behavior. Um, and, and knowing that some of them will. So I'm, I'm wondering like, what you think about that, Dr. Lee, like if, 
if if we could perhaps jump the gun on these folks or if there could be harm in uh, pointing these things out? Well, I specialize in treating uh, difficult personalities and violent individuals. And so I, um, I'm rather hopeful uh, in that uh, I have treated some of the most intractable individuals and yet there's always something we can do. And so uh, I think of it more as from a therapeutic uh, point of view, but of course, we're not really treating the public figures. We're actually treating public health. And so there's no reason for me to intervene unless they're posing a danger to society. And that's not so much a matter of mental illness, because we know illness itself does not make anyone more dangerous than those without mental illness. Absolutely. Um, dangerousness is a different criterion mm -hmm. and when someone is dangerous it is a public health issue as well as when someone is showing signs of mental unfitness that uh, that also is a different standard than mental illness so an individual is is free to have mental illness and that's no judgment as to their functionality mm -hmm. but when they show signs of dangerousness or uh, unfitness for psychological reasons, then it becomes a public health issue. And when they become dangerous, it is our responsibility to intervene because we, we have a responsibility to society. The preamble of our ethics says we have a responsibility to patients as well as to society. Uh, just as patients expect us to protect their health and safety, their well-being, so does society expect us to protect its health and well-being as well as safety. So we, we do have a direct role there. And I think that's a really fine point that you make there. And I think it's very subtle uh, because we aren't talking about um, a specific criteria. Uh, for instance, in the DSM, we're talking about attributes uh, mm -hmm. like dangerousness. Um, and for us as psychiatrists at, and, and psychologists alike, uh, we are in the realm of studying uh, human behavior. Um, and I think dangerousness certainly does fit within uh, that parameter. So I, I think it's a very interesting point. I, you know, I just kind of um, kind of understood that a little bit more there. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I'm, I'm on my emergency psychiatry rotation right now. I'll say that's very much on my mind as far as folks. <laughs> and uh suicidal ideation homicidal ideation uh and and yeah I, I i i see what you're saying as far as like we're not saying you have a mental disorder and therefore you are unfit for doing this you are saying look these are the signs that say to us like this could be dangerous yes yeah. absolutely and, um someone having a mental illness could actually function even better than those mm -hmm. without a mental illness. We've had presidents. In fact, there was a Duke University study that showed approximately half of presidents might have had a mental illness. So it seems to make people even more competent to be president. So uh, it's no judgment at all. Um, that said, I, I would add that personality disorders are not really a judgment on the person. I do find personality disorders to be debilitating. They're often impairments. Absolutely. We allow people to be freed to have their 
their own personality once they're free from personality disorders. And so, uh, so I wouldn't say personality disorder is identical to the person's personality. And, and so I do, um, uh, I am active in treating those just as I would treat other mental illnesses that are causing suffering. But again, all of that, uh, a patient could have any of those issues, but still be fit and still not be dangerous. And so we don't lay judgment on them because they're suffering in one way or another. Yeah. And, and I want to touch base on that point, and which, which kind of brings back the earlier point about evidence and basing our judgment based on evidence. You know, so, you know, interesting thing that, you know, recently, well, not recently, but kind of paid attention to more recently uh, was our suicide assessments and how applicable they are to the facts of who commits suicide and who doesn't. And as psychiatrists, are we making appropriate assessments? And, you know, a lot of the systems that we have kind of places a lot of weight in our judgment and we do enact involuntary commitments and medications and that, uh, you know, are, are, you know, can, can, can take away people's rights at certain points, like involuntary commitment, um, inpatient but looking outpatient or into the community our our assessments are not as accurate um even though there's a lot of empirical evidence there's a lot of data um on which which things are predictors um does that does that ever cross your mind or does that you know kind of make you have a second thought about speaking out politically because i'm not 100 percent sure we haven't figured out psychiatry yet we haven't figured out dangerousness yet um, and how do you kind of um, try to negotiate with that as you speak out? Yes, I often state that violence is a societal disorder rather than an individual disorder, mm-hmm. partly because of the difficulty of telling when an individual will be violent, uh, even toward oneself, uh, as well as toward others. And um, so on an individual basis, we're getting better at it, but we can only tell from a probability standpoint. Whereas when we take a population, when we take a society in general, we can actually predict with great reliability what percentage of the population will become violent based on certain conditions. And we look at individuals and we see that um, the causes of their violence are usually social including substance abuse, including relationships with others, including the circumstances and environment that uh, lead them to violent episodes. Uh, They are mostly social. And so uh, that's why I state that, you know, usually what we call mental illness is individual based, whereas violence is more specifically societally based because we can predict far more precisely at the societal level. So in fact, uh, predicting the level of violence that a public figure will bring is in fact more reliable than what uh, a patient, an individual patient will bring. So, um, So when I was speaking about the former president, I was actually speaking about the public health effects that he would have. Uh, based on his psychology. And and that's actually something that we can 
offer a great deal of applying what we know about individual psychology and um, applying them to public health situations, to populations, the effects at macro scale. Uh, in fact, um, that's been uh, an, an insight that uh, the World Health Organization has greatly appreciated when a few of us psychiatrists got involved in its public health approaches to violence as we brought our knowledge of individual psychology to the public health situation. So these are all interconnected and a continuum at the same time as important to consider where the locus of uh, causality is best um, formulated. And, and when it comes to violence, it's at the societal level. That's fascinating. I had no idea. Of course, these are things that I learned in medical school, that we can predict violence from a societal level so greatly. Uh, it does make me think, too, like, I wonder, if I don't know about this, does the average psychiatrist have enough knowledge of public health psychiatry in order to make these kinds of like uh, like warnings like the, of a potentially harmful leadership? I think public health is a rapidly growing field and we're mm -hmm. discovering uh, very newly just how powerful it is and how much we can prevent because even the most biological psychiatric illnesses, as you know, are more environmental than mm -hmm. biological. And Absolutely. Uh, there is a great deal we can do before people fall ill and before they fall into suffering. And it's much more efficient, in fact, to work uh, on a public health and population level mm -hmm. before people get sick, rather than intervening only after they get sick one person at a time. And so uh, preventive psychiatry is a rapidly growing field. Mm -hmm. And given the level of growth in evidence, it would be a shame if we did not get involved in it. And I believe uh, definitely, and, and I think it's being driven by mostly young persons as yourself, mostly trainees and students who are now looking at the social determinants of illness and, and um, the, the societal factors and cultural factors that contribute, which turn out to be far greater than we imagined. And so, uh, it's a welcome development. It's not done enough. And one peril that I think uh, mental health has had is to conceive of mental illness only in individual terms. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we thought more in societal terms, we could tackle it much better. Gosh, I completely agree. And I, I think that's that's a pretty good take home point in general that really applies to anybody, like whether you're in the mental health field or not, is how can we make our society, our communities, healthier, mentally healthier. And and that's, that's something that we can all do to some level or another, whether it's just like, you know, having, having a, a helping volunteerism kind of attitude, being a pleasant person, looking around you, seeing if, seeing if you need a bus stop in the side of a neighborhood, you know, talking to your legislators. Uh, there, it seems like there's so much that we can, that everybody can do. To, mm -hmm. to make a difference here. I wonder if, if Monty as well, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I agree completely with you, Jonathan. Sometimes inpatient, you know, at, at our, our, our stage of training, 
uh, we're seeing these small um, windows and we're still looking at psychiatry in these small windows, whether it be inpatient or emergency room. We're doing this mm-hmm. training in academic institutions. And obviously that, that grants us opportunities to do research and, and explore those things further. But as we're working as psychiatrists as our role right now is to do a lot of that type of work. And in that setting, I, I, I've come to the realization more recently about how important those social determinants are, how, um, how, uh, for instance, housing or social safety nets is as important as the antipsychotic yeah. I'm using, if not more important, and how we don't really, we don't really get, um, uh, we don't really focus on those things. We're, we're thinking about our psychiatric formulations. You know, we do take the biopsychosocial model, but we don't really see how our, we can intervene at that level how we can, you know, advocate for more housing. Uh, that's not our, that's not our role, as, at least as trainees. Um, and I hope that, you know, going forward to be kind of more involved in those things. Um, so I think that's another kind of take home point for me. Yeah, I completely agree, man. Any, any last remarks, Dr. Lee, as we kind of come to a conclusion here? Well, it's, um, it's delightful to discover that you're doing this and and allowing this kind of um, meta examination of of uh, the psychiatric field that you're doing, and very impressive that you're doing this uh, in the middle of your training. So uh, I'm very grateful to be a part of this. Uh, if I might add, uh, we are uh, we have formed an organization. Uh, first to speak up about dangerous leadership and and our societal responsibility. Uh, We formed an organization called the World Mental Health Coalition, and we are doing a a truth and restoration town hall series where we're tackling a number of topics on how to improve societal mental health to help prevent uh, the kind of perils that we faced under uh, the dangerous leadership that we just barely escaped and, and uh, need to be wary of. So um, so I just wanted to give that information and website is worldmhc.org. Wonderful, worldmhc.org. And th- thank you for sharing that with us as uh, we'll, we'll make sure to put that link there uh, for our audience so that they can as well um, have access to that. And as well, we'll, we'll be obviously researching that a little bit more to see how we can be involved. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Lee. We appreciate your time, um, thank your you wisdom. So much. It's, a, it's been a pleasure and, and very informative. Thank you so much for having me.